Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Hey, Pastor. Hey, Dr. Robin. How is your day? Well, it's a Monday, and that means I hosted... But I hosted coffee hour. Well, right. Good. And we have a small community who gathers every Monday to set intentions for the week, and... Um, folks from all over the country join, and so my day started with that. I love that. What about your day? I am. I'm. I'm busy. I'm. I'm trying to get a lot of work done. Some of which I'm on time for. Some of which I'm behind on. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm. I'm. I'm trying to. I'm trying to both. Um. You know, hustle a little and and you know, stay on top of things. Uh, but I, I have, I, I'm tired. That's probably the thing that's most front of mind for me now. I was, um, out again last night at, we had a, um, an action last night here in Chattanooga that was centered around black trans lives mm-hmm. mattering. So there was a large contingent of the, queer community that I am, you know, in, in work alongside that were out last night, um, lending voice and space to um, the additional challenges around, um, you know, looking at through supremacy with both a lens of race and a lens of queerness, Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and transness. And so that's been, I mean, last night was beautiful. It was also very heavy on my heart. And mm-hmm. um, so, but I'm, I am, I'm good. Otherwise, I think, I think weary and tired will be my, my mm-hmm. state of mind for the foreseeable future. And quite honestly, I welcome that. I am, it is not lost on me that my black and brown friends have been weary and tired for many, many centuries. And so mm-hmm. for me to be, weary and tired for a handful of weeks or months or years if this takes years will be nothing compared mm-hmm. to what my other what my friends are are dealing with yeah i was out on thursday at an action and walked over three and a half miles and um man it was just a great show of folks um not very many clergy were out, so I have questions about that because there are racist and supremacist roots to our faith, and right. I want to know why the churches aren't outraged along with the people. Yep, um, I'm with you. But um, it took me a little bit to recover because you know I'm not walking three plus miles a day. <laughs> Right, I'm right. Getting old. I know. I, I joke. I, activism is not for the week of body or the right. week of heart or right. the week of mind. Right. <laughs> it it takes all three things to 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 move things in the world today. And uh, sometimes our bodies aren't as prepared as our minds and our yeah. hearts are. <laughs> in fact, I need a new pair of shoes. Is what I discovered. Well, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Um, so I'm so excited for today because we're talking to someone that I have respected for a long time and someone who I've been able to facilitate um, conversations with and and learn from, but also love, um, come to love um, this person. And that person um, is Andre Henry, who is um, based in LA and doing amazing work and really can't wait to 
to share with our listeners the brilliance, the revolutionary spirit, the spirit of resilience, and the liberatory hope of Andre Henry. Welcome, Andre. Uh, thanks for having me. And that, that was so kind of you, Robin. I'm like tearing up over here. Oh, well, don't let the water work start yet. We got to get busy. I know. We got, we got work to do. We got, we got shit to talk about. <laughs> oh, well, Andre, yeah. tell us a little bit about where uh, we find you today. Um, sure. Are you, are you in L.A.? What kind, of, yes. what kind of work are you doing today? What is, what is today? Um, where, where do we find you? Got it. Um, yes, I live in Los Angeles now. Um, I'm in, we're in the Los Angeles area. I'm not far from, I'm like midway between Hollywood and Pasadena. So, <laughs> um, and I am a program manager for the Racial Justice Institute at a social justice organization called, uh, soon to be called Christians for Social Action. They, they've been evangelicals for social action for 40 years, but Okay, so that's interesting that that name is changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've, Does they've that mean wanted- that it's broadening the scope of, like, moving from evangelical to Christian? Yeah, we would like to do that. And also, I mean, we all know that, I mean, evangelical was already, you know, already a, a uh, problematic term, <laughs> but um, even more so now. So wanting to also move further away from what uh, what evangelicalism has progressively become, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it'll be broadening to include more expressions of Christian faith, which is really exciting. And also, you know, further distinguishing from the, the old evangelical, I don't know what you want to call that group. Um, outside of my day job, I, (laughs) if I don't get enough, if I don't get enough of doing racial justice work, uh, for my day job, I also do a lot of writing and creating media of my own, uh, with my, with my, my little, my little gang of folks called Hope and Heart Pills, uh, whom I love. And so we're like more like a group of online friends. Most of us don't live near each other, but uh, we collaborate to produce online events and writing and a podcast and all that. Amazing. So, um, Andre, you're, you are a black man living Uh in this country in racist America. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how you are in this moment. Oh yeah. Well, right now and for the for the past uh, couple weeks, um, it's an, it's an interesting thing, and I think that blackness, for me, my experience of being black in America has been very mixed. So, on the one hand, I'm I'm exhausted. You know, I was exhausted before George Floyd was murdered, before Breonna Taylor was murdered, before Ahmaud Arbery was murdered. Just exhausted with seeing these kinds of stories, you know, Mm. and exhausted with America pretending like these stories were um, anomalies, right? Like as though they were random occurrences and not part of a pattern. Um, And at the same time, feeling hopeful, um, because uh, I've been on this serious journey to understand how do societies change? How can ordinary people work together to change them? And very much drawing on the stories of my ancestors who fought racism in the past, who fought Jim Crow and won so many gains. And so there's this mixed, <laughs> there's this mixed thing of like feeling very frustrated with America and then feeling exhausted with, you know, the 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 racist culture, the racist policies, the denial, and then exhausted from fighting it. And then at the same time, having a feeling hopeful about it, about being able to do something, especially with seeing like these worldwide, like all over the world, your know, people are now saying, chanting Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I've really been thinking about is um, how many black deaths do we have to see on social media before we fucking care about what's happening to black America? Yeah. 
I feel like I feel like these images of Black Death um, is something that proliferates, and white America has yet to care. And they've yeah. become consumptive. Yeah, I mean, we've become yes. consumptive on them, and and it has, and it and it isn't. We aren't getting our fill. We we continue to consume, and we and yet we aren't full. At what point? At what point are we stuffed to to the to the point of 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 getting of getting rid of it of of you know forcing it out of our out of our bodies? This is what I'm wrestling with. There is a scholar named Frank Wilderson the Third, who um, he and others in a intellectual movement. I'm saying this for folks who are listening. I'm not sure how many people are familiar, but in a intellectual movement called Afro pessimism, they talk about how because whiteness has been um, because whiteness was built or constructed um, against blackness that that in some ways whiteness doesn't have a shape or form it, it's uh, what they would say is that whiteness is not legible without anti-black mm. violence right and mm. so and so they talk about how the violence against blackness, um, is is not just is it's necessary, right? It's necessary for whiteness to have its form, and beyond that, that it works as a sign as a kind of psychic uh, health for non-black people. In witnessing black people experience violence, uh, people who are not black uh, are reaffirmed in their quote-unquote humanity, because in that in that framework, uh, to be human is to not be black. And so I wrestle with this because. There's a part of me that says, okay, well, we look at these these acts of violence uh, and sometimes they become trigger events for movement activity, like the death of Emmett Till and that like, right now, like we're seeing with George Floyd. And at the same time, I bet if you ask the officer who knelt on George Floyd's neck why he didn't, he wouldn't be able to give you an answer. Um, right. See, there was one guy that was standing nearby that said, look at him, he's enjoying that. And that's exactly what um, Afro-pessimist scholars argue is that a part of this has to do with delight and desire and joy for the white world. And so all of that to say, I'm not sure <laughs> when you ask the question, well, how many deaths will it take? I'm wrestling with this idea because I don't want to believe that it's true, but at a certain point it, it kind of looks like it is right. Yeah. <laughs> that the reason why there isn't enough is because the world that we have built or the world that we live in was constructed on that violence. And so it needs that violence as its fuel, as its algorithm and as its structure to keep it standing. And that that violence helps to affirm people in their identities. I 100% agree. And I don't even know how to respond to that. I mean, I, I am, I, I mean, I'm, I'm so moved by the the recognition or the the naming of what you've what you've just shared with me that I'm I'm gonna have to just sit with that for a minute. Yeah, Andre, uh, I'm familiar with Afro pessimism and appreciate mm -hmm. the scholarship that is being produced. Um, if we can just follow that thread a little bit, um, you know. There's so much work being done in white communities on future, mm -hmm. but in Afro-pessimism, what it does, I think, is counter the narrative of a, of a future that um, is homogenous mm -hmm. or, a future, or a future that um, pretends to be whole. Um, because in 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 white circles when when ideology about future emerges it's sort of pie in the sky vision that we've arrived and i think what afro pessimism does is is stop it, it stops that cycle of um actually no what you're what you're constructing is a vision or a future that depends on the genocide of black America. That's yes. how you get to wholeness. Yes. Yes. And, and in, in my discipline of theology and ethics, I would call that sin. That is a sinful way to achieve wholeness. 
Yes. Sinful and yet required Mm -hmm. for whiteness to perpetuate itself in a way that it it feels as if it can stand on its own. Right. That's what I'm understanding, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and and I think what I love about Afro-pessimism is it depicts, and rightly so, I think, um, how white order is maintained through the death, destruction, and genocide of blackness, and it, and this sense of black life is... It, it it cannot it cannot withstand the the order and the power the social order and power of whiteness because we have constructed a world rooted in anti blackness. Yeah. And so, is there? I guess a question for you, Andre. Is there such a thing as hope? or hopefulness or optimism or uh, an an assumption that the dismantling of whiteness is possible in such a way that blackness is made whole again. You know, from a a white construct. I mean, not, I don't want it to seem as if I'm naming that blackness in itself isn't whole, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. but, but that blackness is a, is, is once again, whole from those of us that look at it from a, from a white lens. Right. Well, okay. And this is why, this is why I say I'm, I'm wrestling with the idea because there's a part of me. So I, I don't consider myself an Afro-pessimist because I've not come to the conclusion that black, there's no cure for black suffering, which is uh, basically what I've read in Frank Wilderson's most recent work, that there, there really is no solution. Um, but what that solution is, is hard to name. You know, what I see a lot of right now is people um, telling white people that they need to understand what it means to be white, to believe that you're white, right? And what the consequences of that are and to divest from that idea, right? Um, my personal is experience- a, Is that a step? Um, it seems like it, you know, like I, my experience speaks more to me than theory, right? Like there's a certain part where like- gotcha. you, Understood. There's, there's a certain part where like theory has to meet, like it has, the rubber has to meet the road, right? And so- right. Um, I think when we stay in the abstract about this, it, you can easily get down the pathway where you just say, well, white people are not redeemable, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a dangerous path, right? Because if, if, if the people who are, who benefit from and perpetuate the oppression are also not redeemable, then what other choice do you have than to eliminate them? And that's not the path that I want to go down. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd rather, I'd rather try to, I'd rather think of the white people in my life who um, have, in a sense, carried carried the burden with me, or at least tried to, right, and really applied themselves to try to do that, um, and look at them and say, "Well, I don't, I can't know their experience from the inside, but I see them, right, and I see their sincerity, and I see how hard they are, how hard they are trying, and say." Well, it does seem like there might be hope because I know Lauren and I know Aaron and I know Mitch and and these other people. They give me hope, you know, for uh, not that they'll save black people from black suffering, but there is a certain sense. I have a mentor that used to say the solution here is that white people need to learn how to get out of the way. Um, and non-black people need to learn how to get out of the way of black people's joy. And... I feel like I experienced that recently at a uh, Black Lives Matter protest in Pasadena, um, mm-hmm. where we blocked off the intersection, and in the center of the intersection were all the black people, and on the perimeter blocking the intersection were all the non-black people, and the org- lead organizers they put on some music in the center, and all the black people just started doing the electric slide and doing the wobble. And all this kind of stuff in the center of this intersection. And I, I felt for a second like 
you know, this this is in microcosm a symbolic uh, representation of the kind of move that needs to happen where these non-Black people have put themselves um, out of the way. They've made a clearing <laughs> so that we can just be to ourselves. We're in the center. There are no white people in the center asking me what they can do to be better white people, how they can be anti-racist, what resources they should read. There's no one in there calling us, you know, or judging us and telling us that we should calm down or what music we should play. That We're we're just there, you know, able to have joy. And so their bodies are out of our way, out of out of the way of our joy, but they are also in the way of the white supremacist violence that we would usually experience mm. for taking up space, right? Yeah. And so I know this this goes like I have so many other thoughts about social movements and social change and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes kind of to this theoretical, you know, conversation that we're having, something about that image has been resonating with me. Um, in the midst of these uprisings. Mm. And that's where my hope is, you know? Andre, let me ask you this question about hope. Mm -hmm. Do you have hope in our current system? Uh, so the way that I think about hope is more tied to action, right? So mm -hmm. I think that hope is, uh, hope is the humility about the future that tells me I don't know what will happen and therefore there's space for things to be good and there's space for us to bring that goodness about. Mm -hmm. um, so I, so do, I don't, I don't, I don't see any reason for us to think that our system as it is will be the, the mechanism by which we bring that good about. Right. Because, mm -hmm. because that system was founded on, on the very things that we're fighting. Right. Yeah. So I really am, I, I have learned to embrace gradually over the years, the, the fact that we do need, we need a, we need a transformation, right? And we mm -hmm. need a fundamental transformation to the society that we live in. Um, what parts of the system that we have can stay? I don't know, but I certainly don't think that they are the parts that have their history in enslavement. I right. don't think, sure. <laughs> I don't think that, you know, uh, I think that this conversation we're having about defunding the police and reallocating those funds into uh, into social institutions that actually will reduce police killings and crime, like I'm on board with that. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Uh, as long that, as those organizations aren't also perpetuating a, a system of racism or violence that is unseen or un unnoticed in in the in the current times right. right exactly so what we have and this is what i say like the 13th amendment right that we claim abolished slavery is like in it's like someone saying that they it's written in such a way that it reads as like someone saying okay i want to quit alcohol but i want to keep one bottle of vodka under the sink just in case right day gets just, hard, in, case, you know just I mean? in case i need it right <laughs> yeah just in case right so we know that the violence of of slavery of enslavement was never categorically abandoned in this country. Right. So, so we, so I don't think that any institution that, that we, uh, sorry, any institution that has its roots in that system of perpetuating uh, its, its violence can be included in building the world that we need. Yeah. I think that, um, People are just now waking up and are slow to wake up to see the connections between slavery and mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. People are beginning to understand that there's a connection, but abolishing these systems is not what they would go for because that's too radical and we just can't put murderers on the street. Um, mm -hmm. but when we talk about systems that whose DNA is racist and supremacist, mm -hmm. we have to address the system and transform, or I like to call it composting supremacy culture mm -hmm. to allow for transformation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's my, that's my fear with this, uh, uh, blanket or or generalized statement of defunding the police um 
is that, you know, we, we have this, it, it, it feels like too simple a solution or too simple a statement for me. You know, you mm-hmm. move the funds or you defund something that is innately um, racist and, and, and a su- supremacist based organization and you move it into, as some might suggest, you know, mental health or um, uh, some kind of social, um, uh, you know, assistance for for violence. But who's to say that our medical system right now isn't currently as racist and as supremacist centered as the police that we're that we're stating we want to defund and so i feel like we have to be really careful about how we're naming need and how we're naming next steps because we could find ourselves in just this big circular mess of you know mm-hmm. moving through <laughs> you well, know moving through taking taking money from one from one you know sh- shitty organization and shitty right. you know system and moving it into another that is equally as harmful where we're playing whack-a-mole with racism so right right <laughs> uh, well i think this is partly why it's so important in when we're thinking about social change to think of a broad vision of tomorrow right wherein defunding the police becomes one campaign of many you know and i'm i'm hoping that we can frame uh, what's happening right now in in that broader sense, because I, I there's I have no I have no choice but to agree with you that uh, policing is not the only racist institution we got. In this right. 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 <laughs> right. And I think as we've I, seen I, by COVID-19. Right. Right. And I'm hoping that. Um, so there's there are some things that are happening right now that make me hope that we are actually framing that vision and hopefully our lead organizers in these movements will help us to continue putting that broader frame on what we're fighting Um, because we're seeing like Confederate monuments come down and not just Confederate monuments in the U S but we're seeing, you know, in Bristol the other day, they, they tore down this monument to this white colonizer and threw it into the, into the Harbor. Right. So, um, I'm really hoping that some of these things are signs that, okay, it's not just policing, but people want to be done with racism, broadly conceived. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I made a post on Facebook um, a couple days ago about we need to have a long view that Trump, that voting out Trump and voting in Biden is not our answer. Yeah. And... It starts with ourselves, with our communities, with our churches and our governments that rooting out um, the racism. You know, we need to have this long view. And a lot of black folks uh, responded to that and and said, we absolutely have to vote out Trump and we absolutely have to vote in Biden. And Mm. and it may be a generational thing. I, I'm not sure, but electoral politics is maintaining white governance. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like there needs to be action, hopeful, measured action at every level of society, including the federal level, to root out the racism and – I mean – I think about Biden, who, as a young senator, created conditions for the police to become criminals that they are today. Right. Right. And so that's who that's that's our other option than Trump. (laughs) Right. Yeah. We're in a similar situation to 2016 right now. Yeah. And 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 it's interesting to me. And I just wonder what you think, Andre. And I want to hear what you have to say. Um, it, you know, the the black community is not a monolith. Just like the Latinx community is not a monolith, the queer community is not a monolith. And are we seeing a new fold of imagination emerge within sort of the leftist communities that are actually saying 
okay, yeah, we, we're going to try to vote out Donald Trump, but Biden is not our answer. And even though people think that he's malleable, mm-hmm. federal governance, the federal govern, government maintains white governance. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I've been wonder- I've been thinking a lot about what happened to America's revolutionary spirit because we are a nation founded on these ideas of revolution. But when we talk about, you know, what it means to resist right now, everyone keeps coming back to the ballot. And I think that the ballot is important, you know. I think that the ballot is important for a number of reasons, and it's not necessarily the reasons that most people think, you know. Um, if nothing else, an election lends legitimacy to whoever claims to have been elected afterward. Right. <laughs> I, choose, I choose those words carefully. Right. Sometimes we have people that claim to have been elected, <laughs> you know. Um, so, I mean, that's that's great. However, there are so many other ways that people should be able to participate in their democracy. One of those ways is what we're seeing right now is protests, right? Um, we know that the four officers that killed George Floyd or that were responsible for George Floyd's death would not be facing charges if there had not been uprisings. We know that the men who killed Ahmaud Arbery would probably still be walking free had there not right. been an, had there not been public outrage. And hopefully we're gonna apply that same thing to, to the death of Breonna Taylor and make sure that the, that her killers are, are also held accountable in some way. Yes, hopefully. hopefully. And so I, I find that it's, it's actually really disappointing though that a nation that tells these stories about, you know, people who threw British tea into the harbor, you know, as a part of them claiming their independence. When we talk about what we need to do for our own democracy today, the only thing that we tell people is, well, you need to show up and vote. And it keeps people in these official channels. And the truth is, like we saw in our history, like this is this is what the civil rights demonstrators showed us, is that they did their they performed their actions because the official channels were, were not sufficient and they weren't, and the government was not responsive to the will of the people. I don't know what it's going to take for us to, well, I shouldn't say, I want to be careful because I want to honor all of the activity that's happening right now. So I, I'm going to say that I hope that we are recovering that spirit right now where we will set up our own democratic, you know, gatherings and talk about the vision of tomorrow that we have and that we'll get strategic about how we can use our own people power to, to bring it about. I just want to bring to mind Michelle Alexander's opinion op-ed in the New York Times that was just published. I don't know if y'all have seen it, um, but she calls for deep solidarity and revolutionary love. That's how we can save our democracy. Mm. Yeah, and I think we also have to keep in mind that, you know, the civil rights movement and even small segments of the civil rights movement things that we think of as being kind of a moment in time, for instance, you know, Rosa Parks um, action on, on the bus. I mean, that, you know, that was a 300 plus day action Mm, (laughs) that, you know, where, where, where our history books only note the, the, the action, the day or the, the hour of action of her on the bus. You know, mm-hmm. I think if, if we have any, any hope of, of continuing to kind of break down and compost these systems, this is this, we have got to commit to sustained effort. Yes. To, to not yeah. being, to not feeling as if two to three weeks of, you know, a bunch of pissed off white people will will move us in any way or move the dial in any way for for sustainable change or even for systems to, to begin to crack. I mean, we have got to we have got to decide right now at the beginning that we are going to we we are in this for as long as we need to be in this, and that means yeah. As I stated earlier in the podcast, that's our bodies and our hearts and our heads. And I don't know that I don't know that the pissed off white people that I know right now that are in the streets are are built or in any way prepared for that. Well, um, let's just take the what the D.C. mayor did about 
putting Black Lives Matter on the street. Mm-hmm. I think that's I, – I mean, this is my opinion, but I think that's performative. Does that create mm-hmm. policy change? Does that create systemic change? Or does that just spend city money where it could have been allocated to support marginalized communities? Mm. Well, I guess so I so I agree with you. And yet, you know, we're also looking at a district that does not have senatorial voting rights, um, Mm. you know, is largely forgotten in the politics of our nation because of because they, uh, you know, are not considered a, a state and and are not granted the right to have a seat at the table for political conversation does it even if it is performative from a from a black movement standpoint does it wake up the nation to the need for Washington DC to have a seat at the table for political conversations that directly affect the district and its people, which we would know if the, if D.C. had Senate seats, those seats would be largely would almost exclusively be voting with the with the lives of black and brown bodies at, in mind. So mm. so I don't know. I don't know that it's I don't know that it's a either or. I wonder is you know, are there other sparks of of possibility that could come out of that kind of performative action? And and maybe, maybe not. Maybe it is just a, a waste of money. But I have to think that, there, I mean, there's a hell of a lot more people right now talking about the fact that, you know, D.C. has no representation in our federal government. And yet mm-hmm. they are at the center of a movement then then they then they've been talking about DC for you know 20 or 30 years yeah yeah well you know i've been thinking about symbolic actions a lot because we're seeing a lot of them right now mm-hmm. and i want to be careful i want to be careful not to say symbolic actions don't matter right they do they have their place and i think that painting black lives matter on the street is a symbolic action that has some kind of import for uh, a certain kind of person. I think we just have to not stop there, right? Like, sure, you can rename that, that street to Black Lives Matter Plaza. You can paint Black Lives Matter on the street. In addition to that, let's have some systemic change uh, right. along with, let's have some instrumental change too. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So Andre, when you look at the um, number of white bodies that are in the movement right now that that have that have either that are either joining in, which I'm sure that there are some that are, or have yeah. have decided that they are no longer going to be complicit in the harming of black and brown people in real time. Mm-hmm. How- what what are your what are your thoughts or, or or how how are you how are you seeing the the rise of of white folk in this movement? Um, do you see it as as necessary? Do you see it as um, yeah uh, like too too little too late? <laughs> I mean, how are you how are you yeah. how are you yourself working through that right now? And I. Okay, so I, I think y'all might be familiar with the the study that Erica Chenoweth and Maria J. Stephan did on civil resistance, and yes. it taught us the three and a half percent rule. It taught us about you know the diversity of, of tactics, and um, one of the things that I think about when I think about white people in the struggle for racial justice is I think about uh, the the data point about security defections and nonviolent movements. So, uh, so for those who are listening, you know, one of the last pillars to fall in a nonviolent struggle is that of the police and the military. And once the police and the military side with the nonviolent movement, it's pretty much over because now they're saying that they at least won't carry out orders to repress uh, protesters. And that's like 
the powers that be. That's that's their main. That's like their that's their main pillar. You know, that is the Beyonce of the pillars of power. For the, you right. know, if, right. If if the rest of the pillars are Destiny's Child. You know, I got to get better at yeah. setting up the analogies. <laughs> I, I'm, I, look, I'm living for your analogies. I mean, between, you know, Beyonce and Destiny's Child and uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm all about it. I'm all, just, just keep, just keep feeding me that today. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> so, so we know that, um, if the security forces were to side with the nonviolent movement, then the nonviolent movement has got it in the bag. I honestly do think that um, I think that the the hard pill about racial justice is that even though it should be white people's responsibility to confront white supremacy, black people have to lead it because we are the most <laughs> we're the most impacted by by white supremacy, especially our black trans women. You know right. that we're going to have to lead the way because we're the ones that have the most. Uh, we have the most skin in the game, right? We are the ones who wake up every morning and go, uh, you know, I sure hope the police don't kill me today. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a thought that crosses our mind in the morning. So, um, that's true. At the same time, I do think that if white people were to organize a mass movement among whites to free white people from the control of anti-black ideas and white supremacy and racism, that would be the equivalent of the security forces in a nonviolent movement siding with the nonviolent movement. And so I so I look at white people in these spaces. Um, here's an example. So at the at a recent protest I was at, there was one white guy who had a megaphone and, you know, he's leading chants and stuff like that. And at one point uh, we were waiting for the, the back half of the of the march to catch up with the front half. And so he was like, all right, we're all going to sit down. Well, I had a microphone. I was like, no, 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 we are not sitting down. Right. That guy was taking up way too much space. He right. should not have had a megaphone. He should not have been leading chants and he should not have been giving directions because he, he wasn't even a part of the, the Black Lives Matter chapter that was organizing it. He just took it upon himself to do that. That is not the way that white people should be engaging right now. Correct. However, at the same time, I do think that it's very important that white people are involved in a supportive role. Um, and if, if for nothing else, because white people are more likely to listen to other white people. So, mm -hmm. so I mean, the, the white folks and the non-black folks that were blocking that intersection so that we could dance in the center, that's their role, right? And so I think that that's great. That actually does make me hopeful when I see that Right now, there are news reports of there are white, uh, the small, t small white towns in America right now are now starting to see Black Lives Matter protests there. Right. You know, I, I could be I'm a little bit cautious, but I'm also like, uh, let's see. <laughs> you know, yeah. because right. this, this could be a good thing, you know. And so building on that, where do we see the church fitting into this work? Where yeah. do we see, I mean, uh, I mean, anybody that listens to this podcast knows that, you know, Robin and I are highly critical, um, specifically mm. of the white Christian church mm -hmm. it, it, from a standpoint of, you know, it's complicity in the, in, you know, this, the supremacy of, of, of the nation of, of the world. But, how do how do we then parlay the movement from conscientious white bodies in the mm -hmm. streets into conscientious and forces for change within our houses of worship uh, across this yeah. country? Um, the Atlantic just published an article today. Uh, I can't remember so the exact good. headline, but it was talking about how Trump's um, presidency is over. And they were using Gene Sharp's uh, work about, you know, Gene Sharp wrote a lot about the pillars of power and all of that. And they were, I feel like they were doing such a great job of showing how the pillars in our society uh, support an injustice or whatnot. And how, when they withdraw their cooperation and their support, you know, is that the, the Applebaum article, the history will judge the complicit article from the Atlantic? I, the one that you're 
I don't think so, but since I'm no, sitting right okay. in front of my laptop, I'll I'll search for it while I it's okay. while I, I talk about it. I think it, I think it came out yesterday, but I'm I'm just curious. I'm. It's called the Trump regime is beginning to topple. That's the headline. Ah, okay. Okay. And um, it is by Franklin Foer. Um, the church being a part of one of those pillars, organized religion, uh, needs to look at the ways that it as an institution has been complicit, right? And how, and what resources it has that it can withdraw from, from the social, from the social injustices that it's supporting in this case, racism. So <clears throat> I think that obviously uh, churches have loads of people <laughs> that, that are coming every, every, every week sitting down and asking the question, you know, how can I be a good human being? How can I be a better person? Um, and so churches definitely should be using their influence to undermine or not just uh, undermine. Yes, but more accurately, probably to expose the big lies of our society in their preaching and their liturgies, you know, be reorienting us to the idea that whatever terminology you want to use, kingdom of God, kingdom of God, whatever it, whatever it means, whatever it means to be in beloved community, it certainly doesn't mean the same thing to be a part of the empire. And you can't, right. Right. <laughs> you, you can't be a patriot of empire and a good, you know, and a good uh, uh, community member of beloved right. community. Like those two things just, they just don't work together. And the you got an amen chorus on the on the other side of this podcast for that one. We're we we, we are <laughs> there's nothing we want more than for that empire to see its way. Yeah, out. you know. So I think that I think the church has to be very intentional about the formation of of disciples to under of Christian disciples to understand that Christian faithfulness, that anti racism is essential to Christian faithfulness, right? Um, and then beyond just what they can do on the symbolic level, because that's symbolic work. Um, I mean, churches have land and money and, you know, all these other resources that, that they can be using to help, um, to help uh, support those who are, who are doing active resistance. Right. I have long stated that the church is the single biggest hoarder of assets in our nation today. I mean, it's the anchor institution that is that has the most in regards mm. to endowment and foundation and real estate. And it is the organization that is doing the least with that money. Um, it is asking yeah. its parishioners to do the most with their money and with their yeah. assets. But the church capital C church is the, is doing the least and it is the single biggest hoarder um, that we see. A lot of its money is being spent on institutional preservation. Right. Right. And right. Which like, just reifies supremacy culture. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so at some point, you know, we have to choose like, you know, is the church supposed to be about paying the mortgage, you know, <laughs> Or is it supposed to be a force of good in the a force for good in the world? Yes, yes, yes. Well, Andre, I cannot thank you enough for spending these the, these moments with us. Your your wisdom is is exactly what I think we need in these moments, and I'm I'm just grateful that you gifted me with it for for this this period of time. And I know our listeners will feel this will feel the same. Uh, could you share with our our listeners where they can find you, where they can follow you, um, how they can support you in your work? What's the best way for them to to do that for you? Yeah, well, first, I'm I'm honored to be here, and thank thank you too for inviting me. This has been really great to chat with y'all. This is, yeah. I mean, I love talking about social change and social movements and all that. So thank you. This has been really fun, and for folks who want to stay in touch. Um, the best way is to, is to look me up on my website, andrehenry.co. And at the top of the site, there's a, there's a little bar where people can sign up for my email list. Um, I send out a little blurb about social change every Saturday morning. Uh, 
along with um, if we have a new podcast episode there, whatever links, you know, our team really liked this week about anti-racism and also ways to support are there too. So if folks are interested in, you know, our Patreon, I always say that people who are supporting our Patreon are actually a part of our team because everybody has a role to play. And so the role that they're playing is they're helping to, to pay for the expenses of getting this work done. Mm-hmm. So um, that's also in my email list. So that's a, that's a great way. I love it. That's perfect. Well, friends, we know that you will love this, the work that Andre is doing as much as Robin and I do. And we are grateful that you were with us this week on this journey. Um, as a reminder, you know, follow us, be in touch with us. There is so much work that you all are doing in the world and we want to honor that all of you are getting your hands dirty right now. If you aren't, um, figure out the best way to engage in whatever work needs to be done in, in the space that you find yourself. Um, if you want to support the Activist Theology podcast, um, you are encouraged to do that at activisttheology.kindful.com. There's a place where you can actually um, help support the work of this podcast and the work that Robin and I are doing in the world, whether it's with a small monthly donation or a one-time gift, we'd be grateful for that. And until next week, we will, um, we will rest in the fact that the movement continues and the work continues and none of our labors are in vain. And yet they simply cannot stop just because we feel as if we've arrived. So yeah. Dr. Robin, I'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk to everybody next week. Yeah, let's get free, y'all. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. 